0: Integrated service downstairs during children's church time you can dismiss them at this point Just follow Amy and Jason to the foyer and your teachers will take over from there If you'd like to keep them with you, if you're welcome to do that as well We love kids and we have lots of them and we're grateful for wherever they are For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 2 Corinthians chapter 3 And it is a continuing study today. I hope this is not the first time you've been in the Word today because if it is, you're starving this morning. The Lord planned for you to read His Word every day and I encourage you to just do that very thing. Take a copy of uh, a trifold out in the foyer in the welcome table if you'd like and get on a Bible reading uh, calendar or look on your copy of your digital copy of the Bible. You'll find a Bible reading calendar. Every day be in it that you might know the things He'd have you know and you might grow as He would have you grow that you would understand these great things about the Lord that don't change and have a very stabilizing effect on you a year from now you will have uh, been very enriched by the time and the word and so that's my encouragement to you God's plan for a healthy church is our continuing study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians in particular the glory of the gospel the old covenant and the new is where we're studying today it's been a fun few weeks uh, since we've been in our verse by verse study in 2nd Corinthians 23rd of September Uh, we had the go mad the go make a difference evangelism training with don sunshine here uh, full morning and afternoon of uh, discipleship evangelism training if you missed that or any part of that training uh, can i just strongly encourage you to see alex you can um, can get a link to stream that and uh, that you might be uh, able to garner some of the benefit of that training day so if you missed some of that or if you if you'd like to review and we've got some plans in a few weeks that we'll do a um, a complete review just to encourage you and some of the basics of uh, evangelism training but the incorporation of that training whether it's go mad or it's uh, way the master or whatever it is that you uh, will study very important absolutely integral to the life of the church which is directly related to obedience to the great commission and so it's our desire for you to make that part of the very fabric of your life as an active witness of the gospel and so we've provided training for that let me encourage you to hook up with it september 30th was pta sunday that's where we celebrated the lord's table every fifth sunday in the morning the lord's table and an extended time of uh, musical worship and so I, I hope that was encouraged if you missed that every fifth sunday we're going to be doing that so i encourage you to be here for that uh, last weekend thursday through sunday was marian's annual men's retreat camp out at kerr reservoir and what a great timing that was because had it had been this most recent week that wouldn't have been so much fun down there with the hurricane passing over us but uh, that particular weekend the fifth through the seventh was marvelous and we had a number of guys down there at a time around the word of god on sunday special thank you to uh, john sandow and alex for holding down the fort here while we were down there having fun so for four weeks approximately it's been since we've been in this book so i want you to turn there if you would second corinthians three uh, we began a new section in this letter uh, to the corinthians found in chapter three and beginning in verse six and as is our habit we'll go verse by verse through the scriptures and so i want you to go back and we'll look there and as we pointed out last time this section does not stand alone but it is part of a larger section of these letters and other books which explain salvation and the glory of the gospel and the covenants. And so I, my encouragement to you, of course, is that we'll do a little review today and help us to understand what we see. If it's your first time with us, we're glad that you're here. Take, make sure before you go, there's a welcome guest card right in the chair in front of you. Make sure you fill that out. Let us know that you were here. Uh, give that to uh, Grant, if you would, at the welcome table. Let us know that you came and how we can minister to you. But um, if it's your first time here, don't think, it, well, I won't, be able to, I won't be able to hook up with this. Anytime we open God's Word and we read it verse by verse, He blesses that reading, and our desire is really just to, to hook up with what He'd have us know. But let's read really beginning in verse 6 of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. We'll read all the way to the end. Uh, that is our section under our study now. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in the pew in front of you, or you just read in the copy of the Word of God you have. We'll give you some verse cues. We can stay together. So I'm picking up here, Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look contently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. Verse 8. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Verse 10, for indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Verse 11, for if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, verse 12, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, verse 13, and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Verse 15, but to this day whenever Moses is read a veil lies over their heart. Verse 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord the veil is taken away. Verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Verse 18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Let's stop right there. As we read through this, and we noted uh, some weeks ago, this passage is something special. In 13 verses, we see the word glory used in reference to the gospel. In 13 verses, we see the word ministry used five times. Paul knows it's something special. Verse 12, he says, after much of the passage, he says, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Now, Paul mentions the word glory 13 times in 13 verses. That is the Greek noun, doxa. It is not just talking about outward splendor. It is speaking about the attributes of God, each of which he has in perfection. And we took some time to explain that as we began Uh, that most commonly referred to word here, and so we won't go back over that, but we saw that even just a short survey of the scriptures, that everything God does, he does for his own what? He does for his own glory, that's right. Um, And I think that's just obvious, even from really a rudimentary understanding of God from his word, and that's really a wonderful thing to think about, that everything God does, he does for his own glory. Even when you don't quite understand all that's happened in uh, perhaps a passage that you 're reading one thing you can be sure of that whatever God did and however He approached it, and however it unfolded, he did that for his own glory, for which He is worthy of worship, and we can we can trust that very thing about the lord and I you know creation, salvation, condemnation, reconciliation, judgment, everything, even to the mundane things of life, God does those things for his own glory. Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. And for us, we're supposed to do all things for his glory. And how do we put God's glory on display? It's not just automatic. I mean, when we do ministry, and we've talked about this a lot, right? When we do ministry, we, we say this is for the glory of God. When we perhaps we do a missions trip or something, a ministry trip, or, or you're, you're teaching a Sunday school class, this is for, for God's glory. Well, it doesn't automatically happen, does it? It only happens when we put his attributes on display. So when God's attributes begin to be on display, then it's being done for his glory. So it's not just automatic. We need to make sure as we do what we do, as we, whatever it is in our life that we do, whatever ministry we do, uh, if we're focusing on the attributes of God, then He certainly gets glory. And so, in our passage, 2 Corinthians 3 6, God's glory is attached to each of the statements that Paul makes. And so, we understand even in the old covenant, even in the covenant of, of death, that God, got, uh, God received glory. God's attributes were made visible. And we know that when He revealed His law to Moses, it revealed some. Of his attributes and when jesus was revealed and died and rose it revealed some of god's attributes and then we noted that at least nine times in our passage paul talks about this new covenant and at least 10 times he talks about uh, the old covenant and god's glory is attached to his works in both of those covenants and the study of the covenants of god as we talked about earlier covers a lot of pages in the word of god and so we're going to take some time with this section as you may well imagine and that's not new for you and and they are important things to understand but back in second corinthians 3 5 paul makes this statement he says he says uh not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves but our adequacy is from god who made us adequate as servants of the new covenant now we went through a whole section up through verse 5 talked about inadequacy as the key one of the keys of being useful to god and we understood how it is that perhaps in the church as you come in or people come in and we see this done or watch or maybe participate in it that somebody has some gift or ability and he brings some uh, proficiency into the church and we think automatically they're going to be successful in some portion of the ministry where we've really made a misnomer there because it's impossible for us to be effective for the work of the kingdom without first being Uh, evaluating our own efforts and anything that comes from the flesh, and we bring to the table inside ourselves as anything that's adequate for the work of the kingdom. But instead, we saw, as Paul teaches, inadequacy in all things that I've learned to be weak, that the Lord may be strong. Uh, Whatever Paul brought to the table, his education, his background, some of his experiences, he said, I counted those as nothing because I understood that I can't bring physically I can't bring something in the flesh to the ministry and ex- expect to be effective in those things. And so we find inadequacy as a key to being useful to God, understanding that as the Lord equips us, as the Lord places uh, opportunity before us and gives us the ministry, that is adequacy found in Him. And it's not just declaring, oh, I'm just... I'm no good and I'm just terrible. That isn't where the glory of God is found. The glory of God is found is that you realize that you don't have anything to bring to the table for the work of the ministry that will last. That's where he gets the glory and then he begins to do his work in you. And so we looked at all of that. We won't go back over that again, but it's a great reminder, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. This is the great apostle Paul to whom I've told you before, I always think that he's looking down his nose through his glasses at me and saying, get your act together, Parker. And you know, this is Paul and he says, not any, there's nothing that I'm bringing uh, that to this table that I'm, ad- I'm not adequate in anything in coming for ourselves. But then he says this, and this is, this is a very firm place where you can stand. Our adequacy is from God. You don't have to doubt your calling if you're just operating inside the power of the Spirit to do the things that minister for the kingdom. He says, Our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. So, what was Paul made adequate to do? To serve the gospel, to serve the new covenant. And the Lord has equipped him to do just that. And so, regardless of what that outcome is, as he preaches the gospel, and not everything was all roses for Paul, and every time he spoke, people didn't say, Well, good job, Paul. I can't wait to hear the next message. Many times, you know, they tried to kill him, and many times he had to escape in a basket or whatever. So, Paul couldn't measure whether or not he was being adequate. Uh, by the response of the crowd all the time, what he could measure though is that he understood he was doing precisely what the Lord wanted him to do inside the power the Lord had given him, and he'd just be faithful in doing that. And so, that's a great. If you if you've missed any of that, let me encourage you to go back, check the and Journey website, and you can get some of those messages and kind of catch up right there. But uh, perhaps as you've uh, you know you read through this, and we just read through it just now you know, you see the word new covenant, and perhaps you're, there's a question you know, what what is the new covenant and, and what's the old covenant? And there's some question and, and perhaps some, some cloudiness there. And so we're gonna take and review a little bit uh, for a more lengthy study that you can check in with at the Brian Journey website. But we're gonna look at some of those things today and just kind of get our bearings, new covenant, old covenant. There's even been some questions just recently about that. So I wanna talk about that. Luke 22:20, Jesus is celebrating the Passover. And with his disciples and he 's passing out the elements, and Luke records that this is what is said, and in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, "This cup, which is poured out for you, is the now here 's our words new covenant in my blood and then again in matthew twenty six twenty eight we have uh, the gospels repeating that same circumstance. He says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins." So according to Jesus then, and we looked at this at length about four weeks ago, according to Jesus, the new covenant is found in his blood, and through the shedding of his blood, through his death, it provides for the forgiveness of sin. It's very, very simple and straightforward new covenant, and he needed them to understand this. Now we're going to tailor that into the old covenant today so you can understand how that works. But Paul refers to it in our passage not just as the new covenant, but he calls it the ministry of the Spirit, in verse eight. He refers to it as the ministry of righteousness in verse nine. He uh, he calls it the surpassing covenant in verse 10. uh, The covenant that he says remains in verse 11. He calls it the turning to the Lord in verse 16. Paul calls it liberty in verse 17. And finally, he refers to it as being transformed in verse 18. And all of those words give us clues both to the nature of the new covenant and they give us clues to the nature of the old covenant. And we're going to see that the old covenant which Paul says displays the glory of God pointed to the savior and and all the sacrificial system and the ceremonial law and the washings and the circumcision and the 10 commandments and, and they all in the midst of the glory of God that they revealed pointed toward the reality of the new covenant Although, and, and although those things were valid, all, all the ceremonial law, the washings, the circumcision, the Ten Commandments, they're valid, they're real, they were required, they're relevant, they are, it's important to understand, symbols that point to salvation. And the symbol isn't the means of salvation, it points toward salvation. People in the Old Testament Uh, Testament were never saved by keeping the law. They were never saved by the sacrificial system and the ceremony and the washings and the circumcision. The people of the Old Testament were saved by trusting in the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God for the sins which the law pointed out. And we're going to look at that more often here in just a minute. But uh, though their salvation could not be accomplished without the sacrifice of Christ in the future, that doesn't make them any less of a believer than you or I. The sacrificial system was, act, was the activity of the faithful. It didn't save them. It indicated they were saved and they trusted God. And the ceremony and the washings and the circumcision and the keeping of the law didn't save. It indicated salvation. And we're going to look at that a little more later. And some of those believers, beloved, as you think about them in the Old Testament, you maybe think, well, you know, that was less of a faith or less of a salvation, perhaps, than what we have. But some of those believers' faiths were so true and so right on that they are placed in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And these, they are listed as examples we're supposed to follow. Actually, they're they are among the cloud of witnesses who watch us, having having modeled for us what the life of faith looks like. And we you know we've laid a lot of foundation over the past month on the old covenant so let's get to our verses and, and we'll just fill in what we need to fill in in both covenants now as we worked i've laid enough foundation i think that you have a stable platform to stand on and we'll just fill in what we need to fill in as we come to the covenants and what it says we'll just look at that and we'll just call this section trademarks of the old covenant and trademarks of the new covenant uh, and, and we'll just kind of go through there, and, and as you know, this passage has a lot to do with teaching and, and less to do with preaching, and I think that uh, you'll understand that as we interact together as we go through. There's much to apply, but I think the basic principles here are important to mark and to, to assimilate so we understand what's going on and what's being said. Look back at verse 6, if you would. Um, as Paul says this, he said, "...who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life." And we've looked at that first part, uh, inadequate in ourselves for ministry but made adequate for God uh, by God to serve the gospel. Now let's start with something here that springs off of our observations a few moments ago and this just seems obvious from the language but I- in our first principle I think we should point out that we are speaking Of two covenants because there's some muddiness sometimes about that are we speaking of two covenants is just one covenant i don't think that you can make an argument that there's only one covenant i think you need to make an argument that there's two the language is here from verse six this this comparison of old and new constantly back and forth and throughout our passage and that language is in hebrews eight and nine the old covenant is obsolete it says so obviously referring to a covenant and then referring to a new one that's replacing it and many many other places the confusing part can be that we're not talking about how men and women are redeemed. We're talking about covenants. Okay, the way God deals with fallen men, and I think that as we make that clear throughout today, I think uh, you'll come away perhaps with some uh, encouraging understanding. Now we looked at it before, but so we won't go back through it again. But let's look at this next part. It says this: "Not of the letter, uh, for the letter kills." You see that? So who made us adequate as servants of the new covenant? Not of the letter. Uh, but of the spirit for the letter kills, not of the letter for the letter kills. So trademark of the old old covenant, the old covenant brings death. And if you're a note taker, you can find that on the back of your bulletin. And and we're going to see the explanation of that statement in a moment so that we don't misconstrue what that statement is actually saying. But before we do that, as we said before, when we see the word letter, Paul is talking about what? He's talking about the letter of the law, so he takes in in a general statement letter. Uh, he's taking in the Ten Commandments. He's taking in ceremonial law. He's taking in the sacrificial system. It's really the summary, if you will, of the old covenant. So Paul says, not the letter for the letter kills. He just kind of sums up everything about uh, that would refer to the old covenant. Paul says the old covenant kills. Now we saw last time in Hebrews chapter eight it says the old covenant is obsolete. And as a footnote, we're going to see that not everyone is acknowledging that. It is obsolete, which is one of the reasons why Paul's bringing it up, but we'll get there. But Paul says the letter kills. Now, we know what it says. Now, what does it mean by what it says? Because when you read the Bible, what does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? And how does that apply to me? Those are the three things you ask each day as you get into the Word. What does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply? So that's what we're doing here today. What does the Bible say? It says, not of the letter. The letter kills. Now, what does it mean by what it says? And we get a pretty good illustration, as the Bible explains the Bible, in Romans 7. So I'll just go there briefly, and you can turn there, you can just uh, look at it on the screen behind me. Paul says this. He says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. Now, I think if we're going to describe what Paul's uh, understanding of, not of the letter for the letter kills, I think this is as good a place as any to take a look at that same type of language. Now, mark this. Paul is speaking of his, listen, understanding of the reality of the old covenant. Okay. Paul is coming to an understanding. He's explaining in his past how he came to understand how the old covenant letter kills. Paul used to think that by keeping the law, he was meriting life. And I think you can make a pretty good case for that as you read about Paul's history. Paul used to think by keeping the law, he was meriting life. He wasn't right, but that's how he used to think. So this passage is expressed in a language that indicates Paul's realization of his actual position. Because Paul says, you know, of uh, uh, as to the law, a Pharisee, right, a uh, blameless. Paul said, you know, if you're talking about righteousness as from the law, I'm blameless. There's nobody's going to be at the top of the pile except for me. Paul also realized later in his testimony, there at the top of the pile of sinners, he was there too. And so Paul comes to an understanding: I was once alive apart from the law, but when the law, when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. I thought I was alive. Okay, Paul didn't know these things until he came to faith. Paul says, I thought I was alive, but I realized I was actually dead. And that's a terrible realization to have, wouldn't you think? I mean, when Paul comes to this realization, he thought he was alive. He thought he merited favor from God. He thought that he must have been God's favorite pupil, or at least in the top ten. And then he comes to the realization that I I thought I was alive, but I've actually died. And the realization took his confidence. It took out his peace. It took out his security. You know, those things are, were all shown to be false. And all that was replaced by despair and guilt and sorrow. And he went from what he knows was an illusion of life to a living death. That's really the issue. And right away, the haughty Paul who said he was, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless... Okay, this is, Paul's real, this is Paul's actual attitude about himself. I keep the law and I'm blameless, see? The haughty Paul knows that when he understood what the commandment actually meant and what it showed and what his body did in reaction to it, that he knows he's in trouble. And then look at the next verse, verse 10. It says, and this commandment, so Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, he says, which was to result in life, Proved to result in death for me, for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So Paul says, you know, I thought it was alive, but I realized it was actually dead. And then he says, you know, I thought I had eternal life, but I realized it was on my way to eternal death. So some pretty some pretty tough days for Paul as he realizes his actual situation. The commandment's good, it shows men the way of righteousness. It's just that men can't keep the law of God. And then he says in verse 12, so then the law is holy. So there's no misconstruing what I'm saying, Paul says. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with God's law. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. So here's where we understand and clarify when Paul says, not of the letter for the letter kills. Did the letter actually kill Paul? No. What does Paul say? Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. So, back to our original passage where Paul talks about the old covenant and says, For the letter kills, it's the ministry of death, it's the ministry of condemnation. The old covenant itself doesn't kill, the old covenant itself is not itself a ministry of death. It refers, it's it's referred to that way because it exposed sin for what it really was. And that's why Paul says in Romans 7, 13, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that, which was good. So the law said, don't covet. And immediately that sin became clear because that's all he could do was covet. The indwelling sinfulness of man was shown clearly by what was good and it affected Paul's death. Because we know that the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. As soon as sin became clear, the wages of sin also became clear. So when Paul says the letter kills, I mean, he understands uh, that the law is good and righteous and holy. But when it's applied to Paul, it brings death because Paul can't keep it. See, when it said, don't covet, Paul says, that's all I could do was covet. I mean, my sin, in, it exposed my sin as clearly as it possibly could. And every other commandment does the same thing. It exposes that we can't not do what those things it says not to do are. And so the indwelling sinfulness of man was shown clearly by what was good. It affected Paul's death because we know that the wages of sin is death. And sin became clear. Uh, the wages of sin also became clear. That's what he means when he says so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. See. So at that point, the old covenant done its job see James two ten 10 says for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point he has become guilty of all of it Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 for as many as are of the works of the law or under a curse who's Paul really speaking about primarily he was speaking about himself right he was under the works of the law he he said of the law blameless Whoever does the works of the law is under a curse, for it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, to perform them. Could Paul even perform one of them? Don't covet. Not even one of them, see? So in essence, the law, the law is holy, righteous, and good, and it leads to a path of life except no man can keep it. So it exposes sin for what it really is, and it shows that we can't keep the law, see? And listen, when it says, for as many as are, the works of, the, are, are of the works of the law are under a curse, that under a curse doesn't just mean bad luck all the time. Okay, just doesn't mean that things go badly for you. You always get a flat tire, and you know, and your roof leaks, and whatever. It's, it's seriously. It means that Paul knows that instead of being in good terms with God, instead of being obligated to God being obligated to to bestow eternal life, because Paul keeps the law perfectly, all those who try to keep the law to be righteous are, mark this, under the righteous judgment of God and alienated from Him. See, that's what the law pointed out. That's why Paul calls it the ministry of death. Not that itself was evil but because it pointed out how wicked he really was, see, because he can never keep it perfectly and no one can. So under the old covenant, Paul was sentenced to an eternal curse and the good and the perfect law of God had done exactly what it was supposed to do. And the old covenant was a path to life that was unattainable by fallen man. And it left Paul and every other person with the realization that they were dead. Now back to our next part of verse six. So, but the spirit But the Spirit gives life. Trademark of the new covenant, the new covenant gives life. The old covenant brings death, the new covenant gives life. The new covenant gives life because it is spiritual, it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, it's internal, it's not external. We're going to see more and more of this as we open up this passage because Paul comes back to it and calls it by a new name, he calls it righteousness, he calls it a bunch of liberty, and every time we get to that we'll just look at the marvelous nature of this new covenant and what it brings. But here it just says the Spirit gives life. And that's not because, you know, it's separated from the word of God. It gives life because Jesus has come and fulfilled the requirements of the letter. And now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, men and women can receive forgiveness and life by claiming the death of Christ on their behalf, see? That's the gospel. Paul says he's made us adequate for the gospel. He's made us adequate for the new covenant. And the new covenant is the power of the Holy Spirit. Men and women can receive forgiveness and life by claiming the death of Christ on their behalf. And it's important to remember, beloved, just like the terms of the old covenant, the terms of the new covenant have been laid down by God. See. Unlike Sinai, they were not dependent upon man's obedience to the law. Did you catch that? The old covenant was dependent on man's obedience to the law. That's why Paul says, you know, the law when I understood what the law was really saying, I died. See. The Sinai gave the law. You have to obey it. It was contingent upon obedience. In the new covenant, we're dependent on the work of Christ, who fulfilled the law and provided the Holy Spirit's empowerment to obey, see? And by the grace of God, through faith, everyone who believes is credited righteousness. And that's where the two covenants are very closely connected. So let's illustrate that, and and, and, then we'll uh, work towards our closing this morning. So think a moment about the Old Testament saint. All right, let's just, you know, you can put whoever you want in there if you'd like, just some name. And, and if, if we're trying to keep the law, it won't do because they can't keep it perfectly, and they're under a curse. So how are they going to be redeemed? Because the law of signing was given, and Paul says when you really understood what the law said, you realize there's no way you can keep it. Okay, and there's a lot of great examples in the New Testament of people who thought they did. And we'll, we'll look at a few of those in just a second. But so you get this Old Testament saying they look at the law that the Lord has given, they realize that they can't keep it, and, and they're under a curse, so how are they gonna be redeemed? Uh, could I propose to you by grace through faith? Think about it, I mean, th- okay, let's just think about Abraham, all right? There's lots written by Abraham, we can, we can bring uh, him in, and he becomes the example of those who uh, live by faith. Three times in the New Testament, we see these words. Romans chapter four, verse three. Well, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, Galatians three, six. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. James 2.23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. And all three times, they're quoting a passage from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5. And in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5, we see this, and he took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them and he said to him so shall your descendants be and then he believed in the lord and he and he that's the lord reckoned it to him as righteousness so abraham hears god's promises he believes god's promises he believes in what god has said or to say it another way he has faith that god will do what he says he will do and abraham was credited with righteousness in genesis chapter 6 verse 8 we see another Uh, Old Testament saint, if you will, Old Covenant, even before the law. Genesis chapter 6 verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and that is the word we know, that favor word is the word we know is grace, and Noah was delivered from death, and we see that same word uh, numerous other times. Exodus chapter 33 verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, now, I will do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Again, that word favor, you found grace in my sight. So Moses has asked the Lord to go with the people into the wilderness. That's the context. And God tells him he will do this thing, Moses asks, because he's found grace in God's eyes. And as a footnote, immediately after that answer from the Lord, Moses asks God something in Exodus chapter 33 and verse uh, 18, he says. Then Moses said, "I pray that you show me your glory." And I think this is interesting as we think about this topic. And God said, "I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be and catch this. I want to see your glory, God." And he just got through saying, "I'll do this for you because you have found favor. I've you found grace in my sight." And he says, "Show me your glory." And I, I think this is very uh, profound. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show compassion on whom I'll show compassion. What's, one of the first things about God's glory that he showed Moses was that he has the right to give grace and compassion to whoever he wishes. Isn't that marvelous? Beloved, you, can I propose to you, you got, in, you got in to salvation that precise way. Did you know that? You got it in that precise way. That's such a wonderful answer. Part of his glory is that he will give grace to whomever he desires, and he'll show compassion on whomever he desires. And Moses was one of the recipients of that grace, and so was Abraham, and so was Noah. And like Luke 1.30 tells us, that through an angel the Lord told Mary in Luke one verse thirty, uh, it says, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found what? Favor with God. Now salvation has always come in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, or in the New Covenant, when a person comes to God in faith and receives grace. And the consistent thread that runs through salvation is that the recipient of God's grace must have a sense of their own bankruptcy and a sense of their own helplessness. I can't keep the law. See, It's not possible for me to live a holy life that you have prescribed for me, that you've given to me in your law. The law is holy, righteous, and good. It was the way of life, except that no one can keep it in the flesh. See. Before the law, men didn't have a clear understanding of God's requirements. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, verse 16, uh, we get this very sense of it. Paul is talking, and he says this. He says, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, verse 17, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God was long suffering, in other words, and he waited and he still left witnesses of himself on the earth. And then later, as Paul taught on Mars Hill, he told the Greeks this very thing in Acts 17, verse 30. He says this He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And again, God is long suffering, see, and without the law, men and women didn't really understand the depth and breadth of their iniquity. God was patient but then when the law came, they could all understand his requirements and the path of righteousness, which no natural man could keep. But now the law was clear, see, and God sent Jesus to fulfill the law and the sacrifice. And Paul can say in verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. See, Here's the deal. Before the giving of the law, sin wasn't actually clear. There wasn't a clear mark that said, this is what you can do and this is what you can't. And Paul says in God's graciousness, he overlooked the times of ignorance. But God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because the law came and sin is clear and men can measure themselves by it and know that they can't keep it. And now he says, there's a time of judgment coming. Why? Because he sent his son to make payment on your behalf for the law that you've broken. Jesus came and fulfilled the entire law. He took care of all the things that were required in the law. Not one jot or tittle passed away until he took care of all of it. And so all that payment fell on Christ. And now God can clearly say, look, before you didn't know, but now you knew the law. And even in that that case, perhaps you didn't understand how wicked you were. But let me tell you, there's a time of judgment coming because I poured all my wrath on my son and he took all the payment for the law that you broke. And now there's a time that's going to come and I can judge you righteously. Remember Luke chapter 18, and, I, and hopefully this is helping to shore you up here. This is, these are just marvelous passages, some of my favorites. But Luke 18.10, remember this? Now, I need you to understand, as you read through this passage, you need to understand that these guys are in the Old Covenant. Okay? This is not a two New Testament saint here. Okay? Two men went into the temple to pray. Now, that should tell you right there, they were not, this is not a New Testament saint. Okay? Two, two, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like one of these other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. So he's pretty full of himself, right? Kind of like Paul was. The law hasn't come alive to him yet, has it? He still thinks he's good with God, and he's merited God's favor, and he's merited God's life. See? I'm glad I'm not like everybody else. They don't obey the law i do but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying god be merciful to me a sinner and i tell you this man went to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted And again there's that thread all the way through right now this is an old testament This is an Old Testament saint, okay? This is not a New Testament believer. This is somebody who says, I see the law of God and I'm not not obeying any of it. So this is Pharisee. He thinks that by keeping the law, God's obligated to save him, but he's just deceiving himself, see? The law hasn't, hasn't come alive and he hasn't seen himself in the light of God's holiness. He hasn't been measured exactly by do not covet and realizing that that's all he does, see? He's just deceiving himself. He's not keeping it. He doesn't even come close. And he's under God's judgment. In fact, he's under a curse that we saw in Galatians. But the Pharisee doesn't even know that. But what about the other guy? Well, just like Paul, the law had done in his life exactly what the law was supposed to do. It had brought him to the place where he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And that's precisely what the law was supposed to do. Show the perfect way that the Lord had given, and and you can see that you were not possibly capable of keeping it. You know, so whether, you know, it's kind of like Paul's answer in in Romans 7.24. We didn't read it, uh, but what did Paul say after, after the law came alive to him and he realized he couldn't even keep the smallest portion of it? He says, wretched man that I am. That sounds a lot like the guy in the temple, doesn't it? Beating his breast, not even breast and not even looking up to heaven, knowing that he's not even worthy, but saying, God, be merciful to me. Wretched man that I am. Who's going to set me free from this body of this death? I am helpless to do this on my own. I thought I was uh, on top of all of that and keeping God's law. God owed me something. I realize now that I, the law came alive and I died. The law is perfect and holy and righteous, and I can't keep any of it. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? See? So very very much the same re- type of response. See, so whether the old covenant person was just interacting with the law at its most basic points, like the lawyer speaking to Jesus in Luke chapter ten verse twenty-five. Remember this: the lawyer comes, he says, "Teacher, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" So here's here's an old testament. Here's an old covenant guy. Okay, he's a lawyer, and he says, "You know, what do I, what do, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And verse twenty verse twenty-six, uh, it says, "And he said." to him. So Jesus is saying to him, what is written in the law? Well, because that's what he knows, right? And this is an old covenant guy. So what's written in the law? Because the law hasn't done its work yet, has it? The law has to do its work. It has to be bad news and then good news. The bad news is you can't keep the law. Here's the good news. Jesus kept the law perfectly and sacrificed himself for you, see? But you haven't, if you haven't got to the point where you realize you've broken any laws yet, then you're in trouble. And that's just like way of the master, right? And they go out into the public. They say, "You, ever, you know, I'm, are you going to heaven? Yeah, I think we're going to heaven. Most people think they're going to heaven. They don't have a map, but they're going to get there, kind of like going on a vacation. Uh, where are you going to go? Well, I want to go to, uh, you know, I want to go to some national park or whatever out west. Oh, good. You got a map? No. I'm just going to start driving. I'll end up there. Okay. That, that's how I kind of, <laughs> that's, that's kind of how I think about people. Oh, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Well, how are you going to heaven? Well, I, I've been a good person. Oh, well, that's terrific. How good have you been? I mean, have you ever broke one of the Ten Commandments? I mean, God says th- there's a certain way that you're going to get to heaven, and uh, you've got to keep his law. Have you, ever, have you broken Ten commandments no well have you ever stolen anything i mean be honest i mean even a little thing yeah okay so you, you've broken one of them okay we, we won't get to the fact that if you break one you've broken them all that's what god says but how about lying Have you ever lied you know so again the law hasn't come alive in the life of this lawyer he's just like how, how do i get eternal life and what does jesus say well what's written in the law how does it read to you and so the guy says well you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So that's just the basic points of the law, right? If you just sum up the law, I mean, it's not all the ceremonial law, it's not all the sacrificial law, it's not all of that stuff all laid down, right? It's just the summary, right? It's just the most basic connection. And your neighbor is yourself. And then Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you live. And, um, of course, he comes back with a smart echo of Mark. What does he say? Who's my neighbor? Typical lawyer, right? I mean, not typical lawyer, all lawyers in here, you know, present company accepted, but, you know, arguing about the language, okay? Well, well, who's my neighbor, right? And so, so, beloved, could, you know, he said the basic parts of the law, so could he even do those basic things? Not a chance, not a chance. Instead of asking Jesus, you know, who's, sarcastically, you know, who's my neighbor, he should have said, you know, you know, if the law, goes, if the law comes to life, to life in his life, he's going to say this. I don't love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a lot of stuff vying for my affection. That's a true answer, right? That's when the law comes to life. I don't love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, and strength. Um, there's a lot of things of vying for my affection, and they intrude on that, right? And when it comes right down to it, I don't take care of anybody but myself, let alone my neighbor, right? It's me, you know. The whole Christmas carol, me 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 me, you know. <laughs> uh, that's that's where he is. See, maybe the Old Testament, you know, you know, maybe the Old Testament person had a better acquaintance with God's law. Maybe the Ten Commandments, you know, maybe my, maybe not just this basic. Where the lawyer saying, "Love the Lord," maybe maybe he understood the Ten Commandments. He knows he hasn't kept all of them. Maybe he knows a lot of the ceremonial law, a lot of the washings and the sacrifices, a greater, broader knowledge of, of, of the letter that Paul talks about, you know. And he tries, but he can't keep it. And he sees he has no capacity to do these things at the level that God's required, see. And he sees his failure, and he sees his helplessness, and his hopelessness. And he would say, you know, I'm lost. I'm undone. Remember the other guy I talked to uh, um Uh, the Pharisee and he talked about the same thing and um, he said uh, he quoted the Ten Commandments to Jesus and then he said all these things I've kept from my birth do you remember that is that true no the law hadn't come to life in him yet had it he hadn't understood that not only had he not kept all of those he hadn't even kept a single one perfectly see so what, whatever the connection with the law, whether it's just this basic one the, the attorney had, or maybe it's a greater understanding, see, it's when the law comes to life, it shows this helplessness and this hopelessness, and then I'm lost and I'm undone. I I, I can't keep this. I really try, and I find myself failing all the time. And if I only fail just once, I've messed it up forever. But not only have I not just failed just once, I've failed many, many thousands and tens of thousands of times, and I may be doing it right now. See? see, so the Old Testament Jew or the proselyte, they could come, they could know that God was gracious, see? Certainly from the examples we've already looked at. See, if they know that they're undone, they could know that God's gracious. I mean, right from the beginning, Adam and Eve, I mean, they live past their sin. That means that God's gracious. I mean, you can, you can apply that right away to the scriptures, right? You can infer that from your reading of them because they sinned in the garden with God's presence right there. And they lived a second after that. That's God's graciousness. You know, and I've told you this before. When somebody curses the Lord, you know, people say God's, very, God's not nice. I mean, God, how could God possibly be good? you know, I mean, look at all the bad things that happen in the world. And then you hear somebody curse the name of the Lord. And if they live a second after that, isn't that God's graciousness? doesn't he have the right to take anybody away at any point in time that offend him? He's the, he's the creator of all things, isn't he? So I think it's, I think if you understand your true position as an old covenant saint, you understand you can't keep the law, but you also understand that God's gracious and you're trusting in that, aren't you? You know, God allowed Adam and Eve to be redeemed. He promised them a future redemption. I mean, that's where the promises really began. You know, there's a future. I'm going to redeem you because you've acknowledged your sin. And then there's this future redemption that's going to come. It's going to be connected to all the things that we talked about already here in the garden, see? And so the Old Testament saint understood their sinfulness because they could measure their actions by the clear law of God. And even before even before the law was given, God's presence was clear because he caused rain to fall. Remember what we just read? He caused some things to happen that people knew God was there, so they knew somehow they were going to have to please him. So a person could then come with a repentant, broken heart like the guy in Luke 18 who beat his breast and wouldn't look to heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And they could do, and they could ask for mercy, and they could ask for grace and salvation. And at that point, they would, exercise faith and they'd be saved just like Abraham right who believed what God said he had faith that God would do what he said he would do see they they could bring the sacrifice and they would follow the ceremonial law not because it would save them in and of itself because it was the actions of the redeemed see it's because what God had said to do and they trusted God they knew that, that how could it possibly be that these these the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin and we understand that they never did much like we follow in scriptural baptism, we celebrate communion, we do it not because those things save, but because they are the activity of the saved. See? Followed in obedience. And the seemingly difficult question always comes up well, how could God then in this old covenant just forgive their sin? I mean, we know that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, so how could they be saved? Well, the way God could forgive them and they could be redeemed is because Jesus would come and his body would bear the very sin that God was forgiving. And they trusted that this sacrifice was pointing, see? And Peter says that all those who wrote, the prophets who wrote, they diligently searched for the time that that would happen. They understood there was more to the story. They understood as they wrote, they weren't writing for their time, they were writing for someone else's time. And they diligently searched and saying, well, when would this come and when is this going to happen? And when will the true redemption come? When will Messiah come? See, because all of this is just pointing towards something. And we're just trusting God. He's going to save us. We can't keep the law. That's the start. I can't do this. I'm not capable of keeping this law. And, and I'm undone. And I can't redeem myself. So, Lord, I'm casting myself on your mercy. And God says, yes, I will save you. I'm gracious. These are the things you're going to do to recognize your sin. But that's not going to save you. I'm going to save you because I'm going to send my son. And he's going to take all that punishment, all that law you broke, and all the law everybody else broke, and you'll be redeemed because of this future work of Christ. See, That's how the Old, te- people, old Testament people were saved, by grace through faith. So the perfect law of God, that was the path to righteousness that no one could keep, had another gracious purpose, didn't it? It brought everyone to the point that they realized that they needed a Savior. It's the whole Romans 3.23 starting line. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. right? Whether you were, as we saw when we studied the book of Romans, whether you're a moral person, whether you're an immoral person, whether you're a Jew that keeps the law, it doesn't really matter. Everybody comes up to the same starting point. What is it? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And then this marvelous thing. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See? And so... The law brought everyone to the point they realized they needed a Savior, and that was exactly what it was supposed to do, see. So when the law brought the Old Testament saint to that point, then the psalmist could say in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That is so marvelous. Written in the Old Covenant. Do you think they understood that? Of course they did. Of course they did. Oh, Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. Yeah. Yeah, people understood that. In his gracious, long-suffering, and love, just like today, Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Isn't that marvelous? The, Lord, the law became our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God's perfect law can lead us to a righteousness available from God to those who believe. When we come into a right relationship with the law, we understand that you can't keep it, and now you're undone, and now you're looking for salvation from the one who gives it. The law did exactly what it was supposed to do. Uh, The New Testament tells us, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, it served as our tutor to lead us to Christ. It was holy, righteous, and good, and it was the path of life to all who could keep it, and no one could except Jesus. So it was a tutor that led us to Christ and imputed righteousness to those who believe. Christ's righteousness credited to us, the same righteousness credited in the Old Covenant, credited for a future death of Christ that looked forward where they looked forward to that coming. All right? And we're out of time, so we'll have to stop. We'll pick up right there. As I told you, we're going to take some time with this because it is so very rich and fulfilling but also important for us to grasp. And Lord, let's let's power in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for a time to give of what you've given us. We thank you for a time of prayer where we recognize that we are, we are in need of you constantly and submitting ourselves humbly before you. We thank you for a time of musical worship uh, where your saints can lift up your name and make your attributes uh, visible in our words. And Lord, as we read these passages in the Word, I, have, I pray that you will help them come alive. I pray that you'll put away any things that I have said, which have led away from a, a great understanding of these passages, and Lord, just enrich them in what your Word says. And Lord, I thank you for uh, the great salvation and great hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you for its security. Thank you for the blessedness of being able to grow in grace and knowledge, being able to move past salvation into a time of discipleship and sanctification which your word desires for us that we know these things we study today and then be able to stand on that very firm foundation and do the things you've asked us to do as we wait for your son to come not because we're earning his grace and earning his merit but because we love him and are obedient and for the first time uh, in the spirit by the holy spirit we can obey and do the things that you've asked us to do because you've empowered us to do them and we thank you for all of that we thank you for those who've served downstairs and we're very grateful for uh, all those who give their time and their effort and their preparation and come early and stay late and uh, build the kingdom with our little ones. And I pray that you'll help that fruit of that ministry to grow. Thank you for the time of the Be the Church class this morning, Lord, and all those who've come uh, to understand what it means to to be part of, of a local body and, and explore that opportunity. Lord, we thank you for that opportunity as well. And Lord, for the ministry that will go on this week, we're grateful for it. I pray that you'll uh, help your name to be glorified for the small groups and the and the Iwana that go on uh, midweek, and for the time of fellowship dinner. I hope that to be a time of enriching time for your saints and for uh, glorifying your name through the meeting of needs and being uh, the one, doing the one another's to one another. And we pray this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, amen.